wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, Messiah of Israel and Savior of the world. Let me welcome you to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. I want to thank each of you for tuning into this station to be with us as we bring today's message from God's Holy Word. Our subject is the science of creation. We're considering the technical aspects of biblical creationism as they compare to the technical aspects of evolutionary uniformitarianism. On the last broadcast, I pointed out some of the objections to the gap theory that so many have accepted as a means of harmonizing the world's secular old earth theories with the Bible's apparent teachings of a relatively young earth. In addition to those objections already covered, weighty as they are, there's perhaps nothing that makes the gap theory more ridiculous than the passage describing God's work of the fourth creation day found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 19. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, Let luminaries be in the firmament of the heaven, and it was so. This is most definitely a command of creation. We are specifically told that the two luminaries of the second heaven that are so closely associated with our planet, that is the sun and the moon, came into being and took their relative positions in the heaven on the fourth day. How could this biblical revelation possibly be correlated with any ruin and reconstruction, that is, any gap theory? Did billions of years of geologic ages pass between Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 without the sun and the moon being in existence? Any self-respecting historical geologist would laugh at any such suggestion. His very assumption upon which he bases his belief in the geologic ages is the present is the key to the past. Can present earthly processes be extrapolated indefinitely back into a past history that proceeded for over four billion years before the sun and the moon took their present station in the heavens? Again, the gap theory does not harmonize anything. God's work of the fourth creation day cannot be correlated with the idea of a ruined old earth's reconstruction. Neither the historical geologist nor the Bible-believing Christian can swallow this preposterous idea. The following words are found in Psalm 104 and verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. As the inspired psalmist penned these lines, he must have been thinking of God's revelation of the creation of the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is during the six days of the creation period. If only more men today would echo the psalmist's praise of God for his mighty works of creation and preservation. But natural man, the creature in rebellion against his creator, does not like to retain God in his knowledge. And in order to explain the existence of the orderly universe, the mighty works of God's hand, they turn to the lies of evolution and of the evolutionary-based old earth theories. Even many sincere evangelical Christians, not willing to oppose the lies of the world, accept 
theories that are supposed to harmonize the revelation of the Bible with the world's old earth hypothesis. However, there is not a single one of these theories that purport to harmonize the biblical account of creation with the vast ages of the world system of historical geology that are acceptable in light of the revelation of Scripture. The biblical account must be taken in its literal sense only, or it must be rejected. If the account is taken in its literal sense, then the believer must realize that the Bible teaches that our earth was recently created in what God led Moses to believe was a time period of six literal days. Creation was accomplished by principles that are not operational in the world today. Genesis chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3 tells us this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his energy which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his energy which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he rested from all his energy which God created and made. The most fundamental and basic law of physical science forbids creation under present natural law. The first law of energy exchange says energy cannot be created or destroyed. This passage tells us that God's law of preservation was established after creation was completed. We've seen that on the seventh day God rested. There's no record that he has ever resumed his creative works after that, that day of rest. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 3 verifies that God's creative works were finished when he took his rest on that seventh day, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Therefore, the Bible specifically tells us that the processes God used in creation are not presently in operation. God's creative processes cannot be studied today. No matter how much scientists study present physical processes, they can never learn about the processes God used in creation. The principle of uniformity, although it is valid for experimental studies in the present, cannot possibly be applied legitimately to the creation period. Historical geology, which is built on the principle of uniformity, and supported by the speculations of biological evolution is contradictory to the biblical account of creation. Christians should not be trying to adopt the revelation of the Bible to fit theories that try to harmonize the old earth theories of historical geology with God's word. God has revealed to us what he would have us to know about the origin of our world. He expects us to believe his word. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let me refresh our memories of Paul's words of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. The Bible declares that death came into the world after and as a direct result of Adam's sin. If this is true, and it is, then the record of death found preserved in the fossils of our earth must necessarily have been deposited in the earth's crust after the creation of Adam and after his subsequent sin. 
the fossil-bearing rocks of the earth must necessarily have been formed after the fall of man and the resulting introduction of death and decay, which God pronounced as a curse on Adam's dominion. Since the Bible provides us with a continuous genealogy from the, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ all the way back to Adam in Luke chapter 3, then this limits the time from Adam to Christ to, at most, within the range of 4,000 to 6,000 years. If we believe that the Bible is God's infallible word, as it claims to be, then we must explain the record in the rocks within the framework of the continuous and the relatively short history between Adam and Christ. The fossil record must be explained by catastrophism rather than by the doctrine of uniformity. There must have been some catastrophe that occurred between the fall of man and the birth of Christ that resulted in the death and rapid burial by waterborne sediment of a vast number of living plants and animals. Even to a casual student of the Bible, this should bring to mind the great flood at the time of Noah, which the Bible does assert occurred after the fall of man but before the birth of Christ. This is the greatest catastrophe recorded in Scripture. The flood of Noah must have had tremendous geological implications. The account tells us in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11 that the flood was initiated by the breaking up of the fountains of the great deep, and this was followed by the opening of the windows of heaven. The breaking up of the fountains of the great deep seems to imply that the earth's crust began to distort and break open by the internal convulsions of the molten magma at the earth's core. The ocean floors were lifted up, and seawater rushed out over the continents in the form of huge tidal waves, hundreds of feet high. Thousands of feet of the earth's surface was caught up in those masses of water, and this debris was mixed with the included plant and animal life. Colossal amounts of sediment, containing the bodies of both animals and the many uprooted plants, were carried along until the water slowed sufficiently to permit redeposition. Volcanic material, blown high into the stratosphere, most likely caused the coalescing of the vapors of the waters above the firmament. These waters then fell back to the earth in those torrential rains that, according to the Bible, lasted 40 days and 40 nights. The runoff of the rainwaters, as they rapidly ran from the higher places to the lower places, also washed up millions of tons of debris. Redeposition of this material would necessarily have buried great quantities of the bodies of plants and animals. They would have been buried alive, or at least immediately upon death, under conditions of great pressure. This is exactly what's necessary for the formation of fossils. The point that should be emphasized here is this. Biblical creationism and catastrophism does provide a framework for understanding and explaining all of the evidence found in the rocks of the earth, as well as all of the facts of true science. It's not necessary to hypothesize billions of years of slow evolutionary growth of life on the earth in order to explain the phenomenon of the fossils or of the sedimentary rocks. The Bible offers a perfectly valid explanation that, from a technical standpoint, is vastly superior to any theory ever dreamed up by man. The Bible is the revealed record of the only one who was a continuous observer when these events happened. My time is almost gone. We'll begin to consider the details of the creation account as we continue with our study of the science of creation on the next broadcast. Thank you, and welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I look forward to this time each day when I can greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Thanks for joining us for today's radio Bible study. 
I'm continuing to speak on the subject, the science of creation. We've seen during earlier messages that biblical creationism provides a much better technical model for understanding origins and subsequent history than does evolutionary uniformitarianism. We're now ready to consider some of the technical implications of the creation account itself. Let me open today's message by reading Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. To one who desires to honor the Word of God, the creation account of Genesis chapter 1 can be interpreted only in its literal sense. It either must be interpreted in its literal sense or it must be rejected altogether. If it is taken in its literal sense, then the believer must realize that the Bible teaches that our world was recently created in what God led Moses, the human author, to believe was a time period of six literal days. Contrary to the idea that the biblical record stands in conflict with the facts of true science, science today actually confirms the biblical account and it points to the Genesis revelation as being the only plausible theory that's acceptable in a technical sense. Before exploring the creation account itself, let's first consider some extremely important geological implications of creation. First. God's record reveals that the world was created full-grown and functioning in six days. Adam was created as a full-grown man. Eve was created as a full-grown woman. If we had met either of them five minutes after their creation, then we would have guessed them to be perhaps 30 years of age. You see, within our scope of experience, they had the appearance of age as soon as they were formed. This is because we associate maturity in an adult human being with the relatively slow process of growing from an infant into adulthood. But in the special case of Adam and Eve, our scope of experience would have deceived us. Therefore, the appearance of age in the scope of the concept of special creation does not necessarily mean real age. Now, let's carry this concept further. The creation account tells us specifically that birds and animals were created full-grown. By the way, we've all heard that classic question which is supposed to be a stumper to the logical reasoner. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? If one believes the biblical account of creation, then this question is easy to answer. The chicken came first. God's word tells us so. Animals were created full-grown. Similarly, plants were created full-grown. This implies that the soil in which the plants were to grow was already formed on the third creation day. Again, God created a full-grown and functioning universe. It was not necessary for millions of years to pass while solid granite was worn down into soil by the slow processes of erosion which we now observe. Soil was a part of the original creation. The appearance of age within our scope of experience does not mean real age. Similarly, if we read Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, we find that God created sea life on the fifth day. This implies that a suitable environment for sea life already existed. The ocean even then contained its salts. It was not necessary for billions of years to pass while fresh waters slowly dissolved minerals to form today's salty seas. 
God created a functioning universe that had the appearance of age as the evolutionist sees things at the very beginning. Therefore, all geochronometric methods that assume that apparent age means real age are, to the Bible-believing Christian, invalid. Now, a great deal of geologic work must necessarily have been done by God's creative processes during the six days of creation. This is especially true during the first three days because of the nature of the work performed. That work certainly would not fit into the pattern erected by the assumption of uniformity, the assumption that says the present is the key to the past. There's also strong implication that the galactic universe was created full-grown in the description of the work of the first and fourth days of creation. Thus, the assumption of evolution of galactic systems, especially when the intent is to estimate the age of the universe, should be totally rejected by Christians. The Bible is the record that gives us God's authoritative revelation of how all things came into being. The first verse of the Bible determines whether one is a believer or an infidel. The first four words are, In the beginning, God. And once one rejects those first four words, he can't believe anything else in the Bible. How is it possible to believe a book that begins with error? Here, then, we find the starting point of faith. In the beginning, God. The alternative is the doctrine of the evolutionist. He says, in the beginning, matter in some elemental, lifeless form. The choice is between a belief in the eternity of matter, a postulate proven untrue by 20th century physics, or a belief in an omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, beginningless God. We all have to make that choice. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All three entities of our time, space, matter, energy, continuum, are mentioned in this opening statement. In the beginning records the creation of time. God created the heaven, heavens, and the earth is a statement of the creation of both space and matter, the first energy present in the universe. But after this majestic statement concerning the entire universe, the reader's attention is immediately focused upon the earth, that heavenly body that was to become the domain and the dominion of Adam. Scientists today know that the earth is a slightly elongated sphere and that it's made up of what's believed to be four basic parts. There is first an inner core that is thought to be solid, and that's about 1,630 miles in diameter. Surrounding the inner core, there's a region of molten magma, basic material in a liquid or plastic form that's about 1,360 miles thick. This second part is usually called the outer core. The next part is called the mantle zone, and it consists primarily of solid rock material about 1,800 miles thick. The fourth part is the outer shell, or the crust. This is the part of the earth that we come in contact with, and it averages about 20 miles in thickness. The earth has been compared to an onion, and the onion skin represents the crust. The solid crust rides on top of the mantle. The crust, although mostly of solid material, is relatively flexible. From an overall viewpoint, it could be said that the outer surface of our earth is semi-flexible and that it is simply floating on a great mass of molten material. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. These words tell us that when God spoke the earth into existence, in its initial state, it was a formless, smooth sphere. We can assume that it was made up of the inner core, the magma layer, and the mantle, and the crust. And in addition to these parts, 
that initial formless smooth crust was covered by a universal sea. The depth of the universal sea, based on what scientists know about the total water supply of our planet, was probably about 12,000 feet. That primeval world was enveloped in darkness, and the Spirit of God moved, brooded upon the face of the waters. God's Holy Spirit brooded over the universal sea of that primeval world, preparing to mold it into a perfect habitation for man. Many people, in reading the creation account, have misunderstood God's meaning here. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 says that the embryonic earth was without form and void. In trying to read something into the account that simply is not there, many have understood this description to mean desolate and waste. But this is not what the words mean. As we've seen, without form simply means formless. The expression refers to the contours of the earth's surface. There were no depressions for the seas and no raised places for the continents. We can visualize the steps that a sculptor would go through if he were to form a model of the earth. He would first start with a smooth sphere of clay. In this state, his model is without form. Then he would shape the outer surface of this model into ocean basins and continents. It would then no longer be without form. Void means empty, without content. The initial earth was without living inhabitants. It was empty. It was void. God's work of the first three creation days was directed toward the forming or shaping of the earth. Thus, the condition of being without form was alleviated. The works of the third through sixth creation days were directed toward filling the void, that is, empty earth with living inhabitants. The creation account tells us of God's logical sequence in forming and filling a perfect earth. Therefore, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 describes the conditions prevailing on that primeval earth as God initially brought it into existence. It was formless. It had not yet been shaped into the finished product that God was to provide as it became the perfect abode for man. It was void, empty. The initial earth had no living inhabitants. That embryonic earth was also shrouded in darkness. There was no source of light. The sun and the moon had not been placed in their respective positions. The primeval earth's surface was covered with a universal sea. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. My time is almost gone for today. We'll continue our study of the science of creation on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. It's a great pleasure to greet you in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, and to welcome you to another broadcast of the Bible Stand. Thank you for tuning in to this station so that you can join us for another 15 minutes of radio Bible study. I call our current series of messages The Science of Creation. In previous messages of this series, we've developed our background for understanding a technical model for biblical creationism. Now we're considering the creation account as it's given to us in Genesis chapter 1. To open today's message, let me read Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. 
and the evening and the morning were the first day. On the first creation day, God began to dispel the universal darkness that enwrapped the primeval earth. We're told that the Father spoke, let there be light, and light came into existence to illuminate this unformed and empty planet. We can't know the exact source of that primeval light. It was not the sun or the moon because we're told later that they were provided on the fourth day. The original source of light was God himself, the direct creator of all light. We can know at least one characteristic of this primeval light. It had a directional quality about it. It was a light source that sent its rays from some given point in space. We know this because we're told that God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. This can only mean one thing in view of what we know today about the phenomenon that produces day and night. It was at this point in time that God started his newly created earth to rotating on its axis. He provided a temporary directional source of light, and then by divine power he started this planet to rotating on its axis against the backdrop of the newly created heavens. Therefore, the record tells us of the logical steps that God took on his first day of creative works. First, by divine power, he brought into existence the phenomenon of time. He created space and he created massive quantities of energy, a portion of which he concentrated in the form of matter and molded into the primeval earth. The earth, as it came into existence, was not a finished product. It was a smooth sphere, not yet formed with the contours of the crust that were necessary for a finished world. It was covered entirely with a universal sea. God's next task was to create a temporary source of light to dispel the universal darkness. This source was directional in nature. Then God's next creative act was to set his primitive earth in motion about its own axis to divide the darkness from the light, to separate day from night. By the way, there should be absolutely no question about the way the word day is used in the creation account. God himself defined the word as meaning a period of darkness and a period of light. There was evening, there was morning, one day, according to the literal Hebrew. Beloved, do you see the dignity and the majesty of the biblical creation account? We have here God's divine logbook record of the step-by-step -step procedure that he followed each successive creation day. He is the divine artist, the divine craftsman, forming a perfect abode for his creature, man, that creature which he purposed to bring into existence as an object on which to lavish his boundless love. The creature, man, was so soon to rebel, to choose disobedience rather than obedience, to spurn the divine love that brought him into existence. But man's rebellion was only to draw out the greater love of his Creator, love that would cause God himself to take on human form and to become a curse on Calvary's cross so that guilty man could be brought back to himself. There is not a single technical flaw in the creation account. God brought the primeval earth into existence, and he began to dispel the universal darkness. He divided light from darkness, day from night, now let's look forward to the account of the initial work of the third day. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, we read, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. In a fashion parallel to that of dividing light from darkness, on the third creation day, God dispelled the universal sea by commanding dry land to appear. 
By divine power, God shaped the relatively thin crust of this newly created planet. He made depressions at selected spots on the globe, and he raised and molded other areas. The waters of the universal sea ran into the low places, and they became contained seas. The raised areas extended above the level of the waters, and they became continents. God had now formed the primitive earth that was described in verse 2 as without form. This was the initial activity of the third day. But it's extremely important that we notice that between these two activities of division or separation, there was, on the second day, a division of the waters themselves into two great reservoirs. We read in Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. There was evening, there was morning, a second day. These words tell us that on the second creation day, God made a firmament to divide the two great reservoirs of water. The word firmament comes from a Hebrew word that means thinness. It's the word that's applied as a name for the gaseous blanket that immediately surrounds our earth. This is what we call the atmosphere. The fact that the word firmament does refer to the atmosphere is confirmed in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 20 where we read that the firmament is the place where the birds are to fly. Therefore, on the second day, God made the firmament and he placed one reservoir of water above it, that is, above the atmosphere. The other reservoir remained below the atmosphere, that is, on and under the earth's surface. This act of God on the second creation day has caused a great deal of confusion to students of Scripture. The Bible states that the universal sea of that primeval earth was divided and one portion of the waters was elevated above the atmosphere. We know that no such vast reservoir of waters is suspended above the atmosphere today. This fact is what brings about the confusion. But we have to remember that the creation account records the formation of the world as it was before the flood of Noah. It tells of the formation of what the Apostle Peter refers to in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 6 as the world, cosmos, that then was. It was this vast storehouse of waters above the firmament that collapsed at the time of Noah's flood. It was the waters above the firmament that provided the source of the 40 days and 40 nights of torrential rain. Since the time of the great flood, God has never restored the waters above the firmament. Consequently, the waters above the firmament belong to that world that perished in the flood. As Peter tells us, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth that are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The three great divisions that God performed on the first, second, and third creation days are our keys to understanding the nature of the first world. Let's review them. Of the division of the first day, we read in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Then we read of the division of the second day in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 6, And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And we read of the division of the third day in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 9, 
And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. The similarity in terms describing these three acts of division can bring us to a legitimate assumption. Notice that the first division resulted in the separation of the whole day into two approximately equal segments of day and night. This would suggest that each of the other two divisions also resulted in two approximately equal segments. This is the connotation of the Hebrew word for divided. It almost always refers to division by two unless the context clearly specifies otherwise. If this is a reasonable assumption, and it is, then the reservoir of water above the atmospheric heaven, that is, the firmament, was approximately equal to that below the atmospheric heaven. That is, the quantity of water above the atmosphere was approximately equal to the quantity of water left in the seas and compressed beneath the surface layer of the continents. Similarly, the division of the third day resulted in the Earth's primeval lands occupying at least half, and probably more, of the Earth's surface. This latter deduction directs our attention to one major difference between the world before the flood of Noah and our present world. Less than 30% of the present surface of this globe is land area, and over 70% of the Earth's surface is presently covered by water. The world before the flood of Noah had a great deal more land area than our present world. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue our study of the science of creation on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I appreciate your tuning in to this station to be a part of our radio family for this particular message from God's Holy Word. I call this series of messages The Science of Creation. We've investigated the basic precepts of both biblical creationism and evolutionary uniformitarianism and we found that creationism provides the best model for understanding the facts of science. We're now looking at the technical aspects of the creation account itself. Let me open today's message by reading Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. The three divisions of the first three days of creation were mighty works controlled directly by God. To accomplish these works, God used processes of creation that only he knows. The use of such processes stopped after the end of six days, just as the creation narrative tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. God's creative processes are not now in operation, and therefore they cannot be studied by modern scientists. The present processes of our universe are processes of conservation and decay, just as the Bible indicates that they are. To know anything about the processes that God used while the earth was in the formative stage, 
during the six days of creation, man must trust God's revelation. The creation account of the Bible is the only place God has spoken on this subject. Now we come to the questions, how are we to understand the effects of the division of the second day, the division of the waters from the waters? In what state did the waters above the firmament exist, and what was their purpose? Remember, the firmament is the atmospheric heaven. The waters above the firmament were waters that God in some way suspended in near space immediately beyond the earth's atmosphere. These waters are no longer there today, and they have not been there since the time of the flood of Noah. We cannot observe these waters, but from what we know of the behavior of matter, it's reasonable to assume that this vast quantity of water, 50% of the entire quantity present on the earth today, existed in the form of a vapor. This reservoir of water was designed by God as a great protective canopy for the original perfect earth. According to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 7, these water vapors were elevated and sustained above the firmament by the word of God. It should not be so difficult for technically minded persons today to visualize our planet with a protective water vapor canopy extending beyond the atmosphere. Venus, our sister planet, presently has a similar canopy. Although that canopy is not made of water vapor, it's probably not entirely different in design from the protective canopy of our early earth. The waters above the firmament were designed to serve as a great protective canopy for the earth. These waters were elevated and sustained above the firmament by the word of God. In order for those upper waters to be maintained aloft by the gases of the lower atmosphere and also for them to be transparent to the light of the sun, moon, and stars, this reservoir of the waters above the firmament must have been in the form of a vast covering or canopy of water vapor. The canopy apparently extended far out into space. It was invisible, and yet it still exerted a profound influence on the climate and living conditions of the earth. First, this water vapor provided a worldwide warm, mild climate. The climate of the entire earth would have known only minor seasonal and latitude differences. Why? because the water vapor canopy would have made our planet one vast greenhouse. Many of us are familiar with the so-called greenhouse effect. If a volume of space positioned over some relatively dark and solid substance is enclosed with glass and the glass walls are exposed to the rays of the sun, that volume of space will become warmer than its surroundings. This is what's known as the greenhouse effect, and the familiar florist's greenhouse uses this principle. A properly designed greenhouse receiving the sun's rays through its glass roof and sides will remain sufficiently warm throughout to support semi-tropical and tropical plant life even though the temperature outside the enclosure is relatively low. Why is this? It's because glass is relatively transparent to light energy and light rays directly from the sun pass into the greenhouse with very little loss. These light rays are absorbed by the relatively dark bottom of the greenhouse and then the absorbed energy is re-radiated in the form of heat energy, infrared. Glass is not nearly so transparent to infrared, heat radiation, as it is to light radiation. Therefore, most of the heat energy inside the greenhouse is trapped there. The temperature rises and becomes uniform within the confines of the greenhouse. In other words, the greenhouse efficiently converts light energy into heat energy and then holds on to that heat energy. An automobile is an efficient greenhouse when one leaves all the windows rolled up and parks it in the sun. 
If you've ever done this, you may have noticed that the interior becomes much hotter than the surrounding air. This is due to the greenhouse effect. The water vapor canopy around the original earth was just like the glass of a greenhouse. Water vapor at low density is quite transparent to light energy, but it's not nearly so transparent to heat energy. The earth's surface was able to convert received light energy to heat energy, and the vapor canopy trapped a portion of this heat and distributed it uniformly all over the globe. Adam's earth enjoyed a mild spring-like warmness from pole to equator, and there were no seasons. By the way, geologists insist that the fossil record reveals that in past history the earth has enjoyed a mild semi-tropical to tropical climate at every point on the globe. The theory of uniformity offers no explanation for this. However, as we have seen, the Bible does. The original water vapor canopy turned this planet into a gigantic greenhouse and thus produced a worldwide mild climate that was semi-tropical in nature. That world before the flood of Noah had, at most, only minor seasonal and latitude differences. From pole to equator and equator to pole, year in and year out, the original earth was bathed in spring-like loveliness. The protective water vapor canopy trapped the sun's heat and distributed it equally all over the globe. That world knew no polar ice caps. It had no great Sahara or Gobi deserts. It was a world that we can picture only vaguely in our imaginations. The greenhouse effect of the water vapor canopy produced equal heating all over the globe. Therefore, that world would have known no great storm systems like those that are so common in our world today. Storms and winds in our world are produced because our Earth's surface is heated unequally. The heating of the air in warmer regions causes the warm air to rise, thus creating a low-pressure zone. Colder air from another region flows into the low-pressure area, creating winds. Warm air from over the tropical seas is moisture-laden. It rises and begins to circulate toward the colder zones as the cold, dry air rushes into the low-pressure regions created by the rising warm air. As the water vapors move into colder zones, perhaps rising to pass over mountain ranges, water droplets are coalesced around dust particles, resulting in the formation of clouds. Soon water falls from these clouds in the form of rain. Then the weather cycle continues. The unequal heating of our globe is responsible for all the weather phenomena of our world. But the first world, the world that was originally created by God, had none of these things. That world had no storms, no clouds, no rain, and by the way, no rainbow. This is exactly what God wor God's word tells us. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, we read, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. The first rainfall ever observed upon this earth is that which began to fall on the day described in Genesis chapter 7 verses 11 and 12 when all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. That rainfall came not from the hydrologic cycle phenomena of our world but from the collapse of the great water vapor canopy in response to God's command when he reversed the division of the second creation day and brought a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. Earth was watered by dews and springs exactly as Genesis 
chapter 2 and verse 6 and chapter 2 and verse 10 tell us. And there went up a mist from the earth and watered the face of the whole ground. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. This also was a phenomenon brought about by the presence of the water vapor canopy. The humidity of the atmosphere beneath the canopy was quite high. It would have been near saturation at all times. The approximately two degree temperature change that could be expected between day and night would nightly cross the dew point and a heavy morning dew would have been the daily result. The water vapor canopy was also a highly effective radiation shield. The high energy cosmic rays from the sun that constantly bombard our present earth were blocked by the canopy of water vapors. Many doctors and scientists of our day feel that these harmful radiations from the sun are important contributors to the aging process. Men and beasts would most likely have lived much longer lives under protection of the canopy. The Genesis record assures us that men did live to ages approaching a thousand years. But God found it necessary to destroy that protective canopy and the beautiful first world with it. The Apostle Peter tells us, and the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. My time is almost gone for today. We'll continue our study of the science of creation on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. It's so good to greet you once again in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. I look forward to this time each day when we can gather together by radio around the Word of God. We're continuing our study of the science of creation. We've shown that biblical creationism provides a much better model for understanding the technical aspects of the origin of our universe than does the world system of evolutionary uniformitarianism. We've discussed some of the technical implications of the creation account of Genesis chapter 1. Now we're ready to consider the Genesis record of the great flood in the days of Noah. To open today's message, let me read 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 5 and 6. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. All too few Christians today realize the tremendous significance that the great flood at the time of Noah has to our world today. This colossal judgment of God is the key event in the continuing conflict between the revelation of the Bible and the speculation of those fields of philosophy that, masquerading under the name of science, purport to generate a multi-billion year evolutionary history of our earth. The Bible plainly declares that a worldwide flood brought on as a judgment of God on sinful man who had corrupted himself over all the earth destroyed all men and land animals except those aboard the ark. The Bible tells us that the flood waters overflowed all the earth's land areas to such an extent that for a number of months all the high mountains that were under the whole heaven were covered according to Genesis chapter 7 and verse 19. The great flood is not only described in Genesis, but it's referred to in many other books of the Old Testament. The New Testament writers also refer to the great flood, and in every reference they treat it as an historical event. The Lord Jesus Christ himself referred to the flood as a historical event. 
He used it as a type of his own second coming when, in the Ovid Discourse of Matthew chapter 24, he said, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Sinful man, going his own way in rebellion against his Creator, simply will not admit that the great flood of Noah recorded in the Bible actually occurred. If it is admitted that such a flood actually happened, then men who turn their backs on God have nothing to shield their minds from the fact that God exists and that he is a God of judgment. Notice what the Apostle Peter said as he introduced the historical facts of creation and the flood of Noah as irrefutable evidence that Christ will return in judgment just as the word of God promises. For this they willingly are ignorant of the fact of creation and the fact that the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. If the flood of Noah actually occurred, then the very foundation of the evolutionary doctrine of uniformity is immediately destroyed. The doctrine of uniformity, that assumption without which we would have no system of secular historical geology, does not allow for such a catastrophe. If a great universal flood did occur in the relatively recent past, then the assumption that the present is the key to the past is proven false. This assumption, and therefore the entire superstructure of historical geology, which teaches a 4.5 billion year history of our earth, stands convicted as utterly false doctrine. On the other hand, if a great universal flood did not occur in relatively recent times, then we're faced with only two alternatives. One, we're mistaken in thinking that the Bible teaches a universal flood, or two, the Bible is in error and therefore cannot be relied upon to give us accurate information concerning the past history of our world. It should be pointed out immediately that the second alternative is completely unacceptable to anyone who believes in the verbal inspiration of Scripture. It charges the apostles, even the Lord himself, either with gross ignorance or with dishonesty. And of course, it undermines the integrity and the authority of the Bible in all areas. How can we trust the Bible to speak with authority and accuracy on such intangible things as salvation and eternal life if it's filled with error in dealing with such tangible subjects as the earth's history? As the Lord remarked to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 12, If I have told you of earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No, my friend, the subject of the great flood of Noah is a subject that cannot be pushed into the background. Either it occurred or it did not occur. Many issues hinge on this question. Let me read Psalm 104, verses 5 through 9. Bless the Lord, O my soul, who laid the foundations of the earth, that it should not be removed forever. Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys into the place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they may turn not again to cover the earth. 
it should be heavily emphasized that the great flood of Noah is a critical issue in the continuing conflict between the revelation of the Bible and the world system of naturalistic scientism. That is, that system that the Apostle Paul referred to as science, falsely so called. The world system of historical geology does not leave room for the occurrence of such a catastrophe as the great deluge. But the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, insist that it did happen. Or is it possible that the Bible does not teach that a universal flood occurred in the days of Noah? The view usually taken by those who try to hold on to both their faith in the integrity of the Bible and to their belief in the teachings of historical geology is that the Bible does not teach a universal flood. They say that the flood of Noah was not a universal flood at all. Rather, they claim that this event was simply a local flood in the Mesopotamian Valley. According to this belief, all the population of the world at that time was so small that man had not yet spread beyond the confines of the Mesopotamian Valley. Therefore, the flood of Noah did not have to be universal in nature in order to carry out God's purpose of destroying all mankind. Because it wiped out all the human population, to the people of that day it certainly seemed universal. With this precept, we must wholeheartedly disagree. In the first place, the genealogies of Genesis chapter 5 show that a minimum time of 1,656 years passed between the creation of Adam and the day that the flood began. Our knowledge of population growth today allows us to assume with confidence that a world population can grow from two people to several billion people during a time period of 1,656 years. The most conservative estimates lead to a population of several hundred million at the time of the flood. This is a figure that tells us that the population of the world would necessarily have spread well beyond the bounds of the Mesopotamian Valley. Let's go first to the New Testament and look at the testimony of the Apostle Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-7, through 7, we find these words. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The Apostle Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit of God, clearly foresaw the future dominance of the doctrine of uniformity. Peter penned an emphatic warning against this doctrine. He spoke of a time near the end of this present age when men will no longer seriously believe in our Lord's second coming. The reason for this? blind adherence to a doctrine that says that the natural law is supreme. This doctrine maintains that the present is the key to the past, that natural laws and processes have never yet been interrupted. They say that God has never before intervened in the affairs of the world, so there's no reason to believe that he will in the future. According to these scoffers, the biblical teaching that a second coming of the Lord will bring a cataclysmic universal intervention in world affairs is simply not to be believed. Peter refutes these scoffers in no uncertain terms with the following words, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. 
What are the implications of these words penned by Peter with respect to the geographical extent of the flood? In speaking of the events of the creation week, specifically the work of the second and third creation days, when God first separated the waters from the waters and then the waters from the dry land, Peter uses the terms, the heavens were of old and in earth, in a way that can only imply universality. If this were not true, we would have to conclude that Peter was speaking of the creation of only a part of the earth. Then in verse 7, Peter goes on to say, But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Here the terms, the heavens and the earth which are now, are definitely used in a universal sense. If he's not thinking in a universal sense, then again he's speaking of the final destruction of only a part of the earth. And in the presented context, that idea is ridiculous. Peter is referring to a great flood in past history that was, most definitely, a universal flood. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue with our study of the science of creation on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. Thank you for tuning in to this station for another 15 minutes around the Word of God. We're nearing the end of our rather extended study that I've entitled, The Science of Creation. We're now considering the technical implications of the great flood that God sent upon the world in the days of Noah. We found that the Apostle Peter makes a direct reference to this historical event, when he prophesies of the Lord's second coming at the end of this age. Let me again read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In this passage, Peter points out two historical events that are not explainable by the doctrine of uniformity, that doctrine that the scoffers point to as their reason for not believing in the Lord's second coming. The first of these events is creation. There were heavens from of old and an earth by the word of God. The second historical event was the flood at the time of Noah. The world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Notice. It's the flood of Noah that Peter uses to illustrate the final destruction of the world by fire. The historical event that Peter cites as having brought about the destruction of the world that then was and the great change that led to the heavens and the earth which are now was the flood. According to Peter, this event brought about a significant change not only of the earth but also of the atmospheric heaven. Peter definitely asserts this. He appeals to it as the final word of correction and rebuke to the last day scoffers. Peter says that it is a historical fact that in the past 
time, God did demonstrate both his power to intercede in the affairs of this world and his willingness to do so by supernaturally bringing a catastrophic judgment on our planet. Peter places the flood of Noah on an absolute par with the prophesied final day of judgment in which God will finally destroy the present earth by fire. In view of this New Testament passage, it's impossible to conceive of the flood of Noah as anything other than a universal inundation of the entire earth. The New Testament, through the testimony of the Apostle Peter, provides irrefutable evidence that the flood of Noah was a universal flood. The record of the flood itself recorded by the human hand of Moses in Genesis chapters 6 through 9 also provides irrefutable evidence that the flood was indeed universal and that the entire surface of this globe was covered by a universal sea for a period of approximately one year. Let's look at some of the details of the flood account. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 6 we read, Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. In an earlier message of this study, we considered some of the details of God's work of the second creation day. On that day, we're told that God divided the waters from the waters. He made the firmament, that is, the atmospheric heaven, and he placed a great reservoir of waters above the firmament. This act of God resulted in the great water vapor canopy of the first world. That vapor canopy provided for the marvelous climate, the abundant plant and animal life, and the longevity of the human and animal populations of the first world. That original world continued in a near-perfect state even after Adam's sin for at least 1,656 years. But with Adam's transgression, sin had entered that world and death by sin. That 1,656 years was a long, sad history of the deterioration of human mor morals and of man's rebellion against God. Finally, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God determined to bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under the heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die. To accomplish the cleansing and purification that the first earth needed so badly and to accomplish renovation of the earth itself, God selected the very substance that he had used originally to form the newly created earth. It was the very substance by which life in the earth was and still is sustained. That chosen substance of judgment was water, whereby the world of the pre-flood Adamic race was overflowed and perished. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the foundations of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. First, the narrative tells us that the fountains of the great deep were broken up. The great deep included both of the divisions of the reservoir of water under the firmament, that is, the waters in the seas and the waters under pressure beneath the crust of the continents. These waters rushed out of their appointed positions as all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. The breaking up of the fountains of the great deep refers to the distortion, upheaval, and cracking open of the earth. Such action was initiated by the supernatural power of God. The magma of the earth's core began to distort, raising the floors of that first world's seas. The earth's crust began to rupture, 
and through the fissures thus formed, subterranean magmas erupted. This distortion of the Earth's crust was accompanied by great earthquakes. The raising of the ocean floors and the earthquake activity resulted in great tidal waves pouring out over the continents. Destruction beyond our power of imagination was brought about upon the crust of that pre-flood earth. But that was only half of the source of trouble, and the windows of heaven were opened. The great canopy of waters above the atmosphere began to condense and to plunge to the earth as torrents of rainfall. And this great rainfall continued all over the globe at fullest intensity for 40 days and 40 nights. And the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights, according to Genesis chapter 7 and verse 12. The great flood of Noah was no tranquil affair. Destruction upon destruction was brought about, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. We can see divine guidance in the order in which the two sources of the flood are mentioned. The breaking up of the Terhom Rabbah, the great deep, came first. Again, this refers to a gigantic disturbance of the earth's crust which caused the ocean floors to rise and the continents to sink. The distortion of the earth's crust produced violent earthquake activity. Fissures opened and molten magma from the earth's core was violently cast out on the earth's surface into the atmosphere. This volcanic activity threw debris high into the stratosphere and therefore into the lower layers of the water vapor canopy. The particles of dust that reached the water vapor canopy provided the nuclei necessary for the coalescing of water droplets. The vapors in the canopy began to form droplets and the droplets descended into the lower atmosphere and collected into clouds. These rapidly growing clouds began to pour down torrents of rainfall upon the earth below and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Great masses of water from both the fountains of the great deep and the windows of heaven were soon in dynamic motion on the earth's crust, scouring up rock and debris for thousands of feet beneath the original surface. As the ocean floors were lifted up and the continents began to sink, the waters of the first world seas spilled out over the land areas in great tidal waves. The torrential rainfall caused flash flooding on land areas far inland from the seas as water sought their own level by rapid runoff. Currents of water running at high velocity were soon formed. These rapidly moving waters scoured up millions of tons of dirt, rocks, plants, and animals. Waters from the former seas carried sea life, fish, shellfish, whales, and mixed these creatures with the land animals. But the currents of water could not maintain their velocities forever. As currents of water lost velocity, they began to deposit their burden of debris. In the deposition process, it accomplished what is known as velocity sorting. Velocity sorting occurs when moving waters carrying debris begin to slow down so that they can no longer hold the suspended debris that they carry. The various kinds of debris begin to settle out according to specific gravity. Objects or particles that are relatively heavy for their volume settle out first. Those objects or particles with a lower specific gravity do not settle out quite as rapidly. Therefore, the suspended material is sorted according to specific gravity. The result is the laying down of a series of strata of different kinds of material. Both inorganic and organic objects are sorted in this way. Suspended animal bodies would settle out according to their specific gravities. We would naturally expect the lower forms of life, simple shellfish and so forth, to settle out first. 
and in subsequent depositions, these animals would normally be buried deeper. As one current of water lost velocity and deposited its debris, the violence of the forces acting on the earth would soon send another current, perhaps from another direction, over the same area. This second current would pick up some of the deposited conglomerate and would carry it to another place. Currents crossed and crisscrossed. Millions of land and sea animals were swept away by the floodwaters mixed with the soil and debris, and then were deposited by velocity sorting in the layers of uncongealed rock. These animals were buried alive, or at least very soon after death, under tons of rock and water. This type of burial is the only type of deposition of living organisms that leads to the formation of fossils. Land and sea animals were carried to bunched positions. They were mixed together, and then they were deposited according to specific gravity. Volcanic magmas continued to pour through cracks in the Earth's crust, and these layers mixed themselves in amongst the sedimentary layers. God left a record of all this in the crust of our Earth. The sedimentary rock strata of our Earth do not testify to millions of years of geologic time. Rather, they testify to God's great judgment of the flood. Once again, my time is gone. We'll conclude our study of the science of creation on the next broadcast. It's so good to greet you once again in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let me welcome you to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. Thank you for joining our radio family today for another message from God's Holy Word. For the past five weeks, I've been bringing you a series of messages that I call the science of creation. We've considered the many scientific and technical aspects of biblical creationism and catastrophism. Today, I'd like to continue to discuss the great flood in the days of Noah and its implications upon so-called geologic history. Let me open this final message of the series by reading Genesis chapter 7, verses 17 and 18. And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased, and bare up the ark, and it was lifted up above the earth, and the waters prevailed, and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. Let's review. When God initiated the great flood in the days of Noah, he first caused the crust of the earth to shift so that the ocean floors were lifted up. The waters and the seas of the first world spilled out over the continents. This distortion of the earth's crust caused great ruptures from which poured the under underground waters and through which poured the molten magma from the earth's core. The unprecedented volcanic activity blew dust and debris into the atmosphere disturbing the great water vapor canopy formed by the waters above the firmament. This canopy then collapsed and fell in the torrents of rain that lasted 40 days and 40 nights. These things are described in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11 where we read, The same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the floodgates of heaven were opened. And the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Finally, the waters prevailed upon the earth to such a height that all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered, and the mountains were covered, and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man. God had reversed and nullified his work of the second and third creation days. Once again, as in the beginning, there was a universal ocean. 
And also, as in the beginning, the world was without form, because in raising the ocean floors and in lowering the continents, God had returned the planet to the shape of a smooth sphere. Once again, with the exception of the eight persons aboard the ark and the selected animals, the world was void. All other human life and all other land animals were destroyed by the prevailing waters. The same waters that had sustained that first world had become its shroud. The collapse of the great water vapor canopy removed the greenhouse cover of that first world. Tremendous heat was radiated into space from the now near-naked earth. But this heat loss was unequal because the intense sun kept the tropics warm while the polar regions and nearby latitudes cooled. Great masses of air began to move as tremendous low and high pressure areas were formed. We have this fact verified in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1 where we are told that God made a wind to pass over the earth. The highly transient conditions of rapid gas expansion and rapid heat flow produced a shock wave of tremendously low temperatures in the polar latitudes. Tens of thousands of great woolly mammoths were literally frozen in their tracks as temperatures dropped to levels of minus 200 degrees Fahrenheit and lower. Great masses of ice were formed in the polar latitudes, and these ice masses were carried by the currents of the universal sea to latitudes closer to the equator. Later, when God raised the continents and the waters drained away, the great ice masses were deposited in the warmer latitudes of the newly formed continents. The effects of these water-deposited ice masses in our day give the historical geologists their data for postulating the Earth's relatively recent ice ages. When the destruction of the Great Flood was ended, God once again raised the continents and lowered the ocean basins for the heavens and the earth which are now. We can't see, even with the eye of our imaginations, the colossal destruction that the Great Flood wrought upon that first world, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the deep, and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters were abated. After the great destruction that God brought upon the world that then was, by the breaking up of the fountains of the great deep, and by the opening of the windows of heaven, then God once again formed the earth as a habitation for man. With the precipitation of the great protective water vapor canopy, there was no longer the worldwide warm climate that prevented the development of winds and storms. Soon great winds began to blow, as we're told in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1. These winds would have, in turn, generated great waves and currents on that globe-covering universal sea. God used the inherent forces in these waves and currents to begin again to compact an inhabited world. We're told of God's reshaping of the heavens and the earth that are now in Psalm 104 where we read, Thou coverest it, that is, the earth, with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys into the place that thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. An entirely different system of weather and climate now prevailed upon the reborn earth. 
The new earth was to have distinct seasons, a thing that was unknown before the great flood. God told Noah, While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. The rainbow was also established. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. Neither seasons nor the rainbow were possible before the flood because of the presence of the water vapor canopy. In addition to this, the lifespans of human beings begin to decrease. This was most likely due to two factors. First, because the water vapor canopy was no longer present, there was an increase in the harmful solar radiation that reached the surface of the earth. Such solar radiation seems to have significant effect on the aging process. Second, lifespans probably decreased because of the more austere living conditions of this world's new climate. The oceans of the post-flood world, our world, are, of course, significantly larger than the oceans of that first world. There's good reason for this. Although God did divide the land from the waters for the post-flood world, there is no record that he has ever again divided the waters from the waters. Our great oceans of today now contain both the waters that were formerly above the firmament and those that were below the firmament. But the infinite wisdom of God is apparent even in this because these great seas of our world are essential for the operation of this world's hydrologic cycle. The total waters now present in this world's atmosphere are, of course, significantly less than those present in the pre-flood canopy. If all of the waters in the present atmosphere were to fall upon the earth, they would cover the present land surface to a depth of only about two inches. This, of course, bears witness to God's thrice-repeated promise that he would never bring another universal flood on this earth. Let's look just for a moment at the implications of the flood. If a worldwide flood occurred in the relatively recent past, then it is absolutely ridiculous to ignore this event when speculating on geologic history. Volcanic effects from the breaking up of the fountains of the great deep were rampant. Erosion and redeposition took place on a colossal scale. There were most likely such things as tidal effects, great windstorms, and massive water shifts even after the main flood was over. The flood killed every land creature on the face of the earth and great masses of sediment were in motion. It can be expected that great numbers of plants and animals would be buried by these sediments under conditions that are exactly right for the formation of fossils. Most of the fossils in the earth were formed during the time of the great flood. God has preserved a monument to that first world in the sedimentary rocks of this world. That is the early history of planet earth. We now abide on those islands and continents that were lifted up from the universal sea of the great flood. This is the world that the apostle Peter referred to as the heavens and the earth which are now in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. What is to be the fate of this present world? Peter continues on to give the answer to that question. This present world is held in reserve for a soon coming judgment by fire. There will be no waters of a flood this second time. Rather, this earth is to undergo nuclear disintegration when it has served its purpose. Just listen to Peter's parting words on this subject. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. My time is gone. I've been greatly blessed in bringing you this series of messages on the science of creation. 
I'll return on the next broadcast with another series of messages from God's Holy Word. The Bible You've been listening to The Bible Stands, an independent faith ministry conducted as a worldwide radio missionary outreach by Bible expositor Wayne Carver. This program is dedicated to the upholding of the doctrines of the full verbal inspiration, the total inerrancy, and the absolute authority of the Holy Bible. The messages presented each day are available on cassette tape to those who support this ministry with their tax-deductible gifts and offerings. The Bible Stands is totally dependent upon the contributions of our radio listeners for its continuance on your station. You are invited to send your gifts and offerings, your request for cassette tapes, and your Bible questions to Wayne Carver in care of the Bible Stands radio broadcast. The Bible Stands is a faith ministry totally dependent upon the financial support of God's people for its continuing outreach. The program is sponsored by the Bible Stands Radio Broadcast, 6510 Spring Rose, San Antonio, Texas, 78249.